this is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is author and researcher Justin Durer. Justin has spent the last six years uncovering the story of obscure cartoonist, painter, illustrator, and sculptor Herbert E. Crowley, a true forgotten visionary. I learned about Justin through the Kickstarter campaign for his upcoming book, The Temple of Silence, Forgotten Works and Worlds of Herbert Crowley. Scheduled to be published in November of 2017, this oversized archival art book will document, for the first time, the works of Crowley, who in 1917 disappeared from the art scene, never showing his work again. After marrying American heiress Alice Lewinson, the couple traveled around the world, eventually winding up in Zurich, where they became analysands of Carl Jung and part of the psychology club's inner circle. In a 1951 letter, Jung described Crowley's work, saying that, quote, drawings by Mr. Crowley are quite interesting inasmuch as they contain curious symbols referring to the sympathicus as well as to the multiple luminosities of the collective unconscious. He has been driven into astounding depths, quite dangerous when consciousness is not up to it. Such things usually leave a peculiar void in the conscious world after they have passed, unquote. The book's Kickstarter campaign, which ended on November 11, 2016, has brought in 740 backers and raised $96,772. Justin is a highly regarded visionary artist in his own right, and I highly recommend taking a look at his work on his website, justindurer.com. And you can visit our website, speakingofjung.com, for more information and to see some of the works that Justin talks about here today. This interview was recorded on November 9th, 2016, through the magic of Skype. Is this your Kickstarter, or are you partners with someone? I'm the author and compiler and uh, researcher of the book. And then Josh O'Neill as the uh, publisher, and so that's his uh, that's his publishing enterprise. Uh, Beehive Books it's called. He used to do um, one called Locust Moon. Uh, and they're local here in Philadelphia. I'll tell you a story about how it came about. I was a documentary film uh, subject, a researcher that was filmed doing my research, basically in a in a documentary film called Resurrect Dead: The Mystery of the Twin Bee Tiles. Um, and that uh, came out early in 2011 um, and won an uh, award at the Sundance Film Festival for um, Best Director, Best New Director, I think, um, of doc- in the documentary category. So the, so the movie sort of follows my research into the... You'd have to watch the movie. It's a, little, it's a little hard to explain. It'll be too long-winded, and then your whole podcast will just be about this. But anyway... Uh, in the end of this film, which chronicles my research into this mysterious um, art phenomenon, basically I'll call it, in Philadelphia, um, which is these mosaic tiles that are embedded into the asphalt of intersections in the streets that say, Resur- uh, Toynbee Idea in movie 2001, Resurrect Dead on Planet Jupiter. And they've been appearing since the 80s, and they're all over the world. And I get into researching this, and then my friend John basically videotaped me researching it. And that was the movie, but 
in the end of the movie, there's a sort of little like, where are they now blurb, you know, as, as the credits get ready to go up and stuff. And it says, Justin is currently uh, searching for the lost works of obscure cartoonist Herbert E. Crowley. And so Josh O'Neill of Beehive Books, Locust Moon fame, he um, was watching the movie, just, just coincidentally uh, happened to see it. Uh, cause it's, it's, a, it's about a local story and stuff. And um, he got to the end of the movie and he saw that little blurb and he had heard of Herbert Crowley through a, the same book that I first encountered him in actually, which is a really great book that came out in 2006 called Art Out of Time, Unknown Comics Visionaries, 1900 to 1969. That was uh, edited by Dan Nadell. And uh, in that book, which is basically a collection of completely forgotten comic strip artists, uh, either completely forgotten or nearly forgotten. Some of Herbert Crowley's work is in there. And then the back of the book, Nadell has a little blurb. Oh, and get this. This is great for the um, Jungian stuff. He says, uh, Herbert Crowley's characters are more akin to mandalas than any cartoon character. And he was right, but he didn't know that he had anything, any to, anything to do with Jung. Or, and the funny thing was that at that time in his life, Herbert Crowley had not yet met Jung. I mean, almost certainly not. So Herbert Crowley was, uh, he, let's see, it's, it's so much information to condense down. He was born in 1873 and died in 1937. So that, that was the, that was his time period. And, uh, he was, a he wanted to be an opera singer. He was trained as an opera singer when he was very young. He was born in England, um, in Kent. The obvious question is, is there any relationship between Herbert and Alistair Crowley? Oh, you know, it's funny because I just wrote up a thing about that yesterday just to pique people's interest in the fundraiser. But um, the the short answer is no, and the long answer is yes. So, I mean, they, there's no blood relation. They weren't third cousins or anything like that. Crowley is actually a pretty common uh, last name, you know, in, in England and, and other parts of the world. So they weren't related, I don't think, even relatively distantly. But they were sort of part of the same milieu, time and place. And they had a couple of connections. Uh, one connection was, so Herbert Crowley's very good friend, Mary Mulberry Clark, who's a super fascinating person in and of her own right. She had this bookstore in, in New York uh, that she opened in 1916, along with um, her, her partner in the bookstore, Madge Jennison. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, would, they would host music events and stuff like that, as well as have readings by authors and, you know, who were at the time unknown, but a lot of them went on to be very well known, like Theodore Dreiser and uh, Robert Frost read there, you know, before they were well known. So she was also close with this person, uh, Ananda Kumaraswamy, who you might have heard of some in some level, I don't know, in relation to Young, because I know he knew Young, uh, the two of them had a correspondence and stuff at some point. I forget what the time frame was. He was from India and uh, he traveled to the United States and, you know, the early, like, like 19 teens. Um, and he was, he wrote a lot about Indian art and culture, but a lot of it was with an eye to this anti-imperialist political sort of bent. So him, him and the Mulberry Clarks and all these people were very interested in and influenced by this Morris arts and crafts movement. And Kumaraswamy, I think, wanted to do something sort of similar in India. So it was basically, I mean, Gandhi had a, had a similar idea. They were, they were essentially saying, well, we're not going to buy the British textiles and stuff um we'll make our own handcrafted you know clothing and things like that it's like a boycott at any rate 
so Kumaraswamy was in was in the U.S. and uh, his second wife, Alice. I can't remember her last name now. I only really know her stage name, which was uh, Ratan Devi. Anyway, she was touring. She had trained to play the sitar. She had studied sitar and uh, traditional Indian folk songs and stuff. And she was touring the United States extensively playing Indian classical music. And it was a complete sensation, you know. So Alistair Crowley, I guess Kumaraswamy contacted Alistair Crowley because Alistair Crowley was writing for Vanity Fair magazine at the time. This was in 1916, I think. And uh, wanted him to sort of be you know, write a little publicity piece for her performance or something. So he wrote this great piece actually about going to, and I think it was at the Sunwise Turn bookstore where this performance was. I'm not totally sure about that, but the way Alistair Crowley describes it in this piece of writing, it sounds like it is, you know, the way he describes the room. But it's a, it's a great piece of writing. And he talks about walking through the snow and going to see this woman play this music in this room and how magical it is. And then he leaves and goes out into the snow again and the contrast between all this stuff. But, um, Anyway, he became completely fixated on her and the two of them, you know, started having an affair basically, but they were involved in the ceremonial magic. He called it, and all, you know, his synthesis of all different, you know, there's like some yoga in there and all kinds of other stuff. But she, she did this performance and, um, you know, Alistair Crowley and her ended up having this affair and she became pregnant and Alistair Crowley really wanted to have this baby and, uh, Ananda Kumaraswamy didn't want him to uh, be involved with her anymore. And he wanted to go back to India. She decided she wanted to go back to India too. And then I guess her health wasn't good. And she had a miscarriage on the, on the voyage uh, at sea. So then Alistair Crowley kind of went off the deep end and wrote all this mean stuff about Ananda Kumaraswamy and everything because he was outraged at this, you know, situation, but because he wanted her to stay in the United States and have this baby and everything. But Herbert Crowley, enters into this picture because he was very, very much at the time part of that Sunwise Turn circle. And uh, it's very likely that he was, that he attended this performance and he definitely knew Kumaraswamy. And given that, I'm sure that he knew um, this uh, Ratan Devi as well. So did he meet Alistair Crowley through them? I'd say it's pretty likely. I mean, at least once, like a, like a, you know, brief meeting or something like that. But anyway, I mean, they weren't related or anything like that. I mean, <laughs> just just to say that they were part of the same sort of creative avant-garde circle in New York at that time. Well, how did they both, since they were both born in England, how did they both wind up in New York? Well, for different reasons. I mean, their paths to New York were, were for completely different purposes and reasons. I, I'm, and I don't know as much about Alistair Crowley. I'm not really, you know, I never researched him too deeply. I just sort of know, like, a, you know, a few little pop cultural things that I've read about him and stuff. One of the other reasons why I mention him is because, and you mentioned he was writing for Vanity Fair, and I'm I'm just looking up the date here. This was in the December 1916 issue of Vanity Fair. Alistair Crowley uh, mentioned Jung. Yeah, yeah. He, I think that's not the only time he mentioned him. I, I would guess, but um, they never met each other as far as anybody knows. Now there were people in Zurich that had a, you know, like lodge of Alistair Crowley's cult or whatever and stuff. And Jung was friendly with them and they would, they would participate in that, um, Aranos conference and stuff like that. I forget the woman's name that was kind of the head of that, uh, OTO it's called, but, Oh, I just looked this up and I found this real quick. <laughs> I couldn't, can't believe I didn't remember this. 
Herbert Crowley's art dealer, Martin Birnbaum. He has a great autobiography. It's called The Last Romantic. And um, he describes Herbert Crowley for a couple of paragraphs in this book. And then right after that, he describes Alistair Crowley, who also, when he was in New York, was trying to get Martin Birnbaum to um, show his artwork. And uh, Birnbaum turned him down because I think he thought he was too unpredictable and stuff. So he says in the book, Herbert Edmund Crowley should not, of course, be confused with Alistair Crowley. And he says, um, no dealer, I feel certain, would have had the audacity to exhibit his phallic erotic output, um, which which isn't even necessarily true. Alistair Crowley's art is actually not so, it's not as outrageous as a lot of other art that was around at the time, like that wasn't considered to be so. Um, it was the one Herbert Crowley was sometimes compared to William Blake and uh, Aubrey Beardsley. So Aubrey Beardsley was, was, a, was an artist that really was more, the stuff was more phallic and erotic, but, you know, there wasn't a riot when it was exhibited or anything. But. So um, once in New York, he fell in with this uh, sculptor, John Frederick Mowbray Clark, who was uh, also from England. Um, he, actually, I guess he was born in Jamaica, but he grew up in England, so they probably bonded over, over their British background and stuff. And um, they, they were living together uh, in John Mowbray Clark's studio. And... Uh, John started to uh, spend a lot of time with this woman, Mary Horgan, later Mary Mowbray Clark, and uh, she became very good friends with both of them, and she ended up marrying John. And when she married him, you know, the joke among her and her friends was, you know, when I married John and Herbert, because Herbert sort of came along as the, you know, he was he was the artistic type personality that could never hold down a job, and he always needed somewhere to stay. And so he sort of came along with the, the package, you know, so the three of them decided to buy this land in Rockland County, New York um, in 1908 to make sort of an artist commune inspired by the Morris arts and crafts movement. They sort of wanted to do this like back to nature artist commune where they would make their own utensils and clothing and everything like that. And uh, they bought this 1700 era farmhouse and um, the three of them moved up there. And then over time, more and more artists started to move to that part of the country um, and kind of inspired by their lead. So, you know, that was a big part of their life. And then uh, in 1912, John Frederick Mowbray Clark and some other people that he knew, uh, they started to put together this American Association of Artists and Painters, which was kind of a reaction against the uh, National Academy of Design, which was kind of a big megalithic art juggernaut at the time that, that was like considered to be more establishment. You know, they they were still drawing from the antique, as they call it. You know, so everything had to be copied from life. And uh, these younger artists could see that with the advent of photography and a lot of other stuff, uh, art forms were changing. And, you know, they wanted a, a platform for this stuff. So they all started to, um, you know, conspire and meet and uh, think about putting together this, what eventually became known as the Armory Show. But they had some people um, go to Europe and start collecting examples of, all, all different types of avant-garde art to bring over for this show. Here's the thing about Herbert Crowley. You can tell from any research you do into him, all these primary sources and stuff, he was like a total introvert. And also maybe, I don't know, I, I, I don't like to diagnose people from beyond the grave, but I, I imagine that his type of person now, somebody might say, oh, it's like a bipolar sort of person. Like if you just read his letters and, and read, you know, Mary Mulberry Clark's diary where she describes him. I mean, one one day he's going to kill himself and 
she doesn't know where he's at and she's worried about him. And then the next day he says, I'm so I'm bubbling over with ideas and things just can't be better. And, and that's, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that's part of the reason why he became so forgotten eventually, because he would sometimes have these sort of fits where he would destroy his own work or um, decide that his work was no good. Or he believed that the work, the artwork was uh, protecting him from evil, that it was like a talisman sort of thing. And then I guess sometimes he would decide that he did it wrong and that was bringing evil to him. You know? And you found this out, how this information about him? I found all this stuff out from many different sources because like I say, the research took over six years. So, I mean, you name it. I mean, I, some stuff is in the archives of American art, the Smithsonian, there's stuff, uh, the place Harry Ransom center in Texas has a couple letters of his, you know, there's, um, the ETH bibliotheque in uh, Zurich. They have some, I mean, you know, I just drew material from so many places. The most unusual places were me and my wife and, uh, August, 2015, we went to this place, the Brocken. We found somebody from the local historic society that knew where it had been. And that's the commune in New York? Right, in Rockland County, right? Okay. Yep. And uh, I figured there might just be a, you know, foundation left or something. Um, But my wife, Mandy, she's interested in gardening. She's a gardener. So she thought, well, there's probably traces of plants that they grew. And that'll be interesting because Herbert Crowley was into roses and stuff. So we went up there. And it turns out this house is still there. It's like collapsing into the woods, but it's like halfway collapsed. And, you know, the door's like falling off the hinges and stuff. And uh, on the steps, you know, leading out into the woods, I see this little, you know, circular thing laying on the steps. And it's this little piece of plaster, like a plaster medallion portrait that John Mulberry Clark would do these little portraits of people, almost like coins, but, you know, they're like the size of the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. And it had been like, rained on so it was all pockmarked with moss and stuff like that but it's just laying there cracked and I was like I can't believe this is just I mean the thing is from like 1907 and it's just laying on this doorstep and we went into the house and it was like there was a lot of little things like that in there I found a letter from Herbert Crowley's wife informing Mary Mulberry Clark of his death in 1937 you know my wife found I was out there as a cemetery in the woods out back of this place the 1700s era cemetery and um she came up and tapped me on the shoulder. She said, happy birthday. Cause it was my birthday. She found a, uh, a hand colored print of Herbert Coley's from 1916. Um, that was in a raccoon's nest. It was like being used as lining in a raccoon nest. And you have that. Yes. Um, and, and a lot of other stuff too. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of little pieces of ephemera and, you know, the artist Charles Birchfield, that uh, Mary Mulberry Clark was really kind of responsible for launching his art career because she so showed his work at the Sunwise Turn a lot and stuff. I found a little postcard sized painting that he gave to her for like a Christmas gift or something, you know. Dude, it's just amazing stuff. And it's like half eaten by silverfish and like yeah. so that was uh one of those experiences, one of those research experiences that was really more like a dream, like one of those things that you just can't believe is really happening because it seems so dreamlike. Like it was strange to think that this could all be real, you know, like there's this place and it's crumbling into the woods and there's a cemetery in the back and then there, here's a letter from 1912 and it's like yeah. so let's pick up where, where we left off where are we now he he was in the united oh. states with this couple he was sort of the staying with them yeah so he's staying with them at this place the brocken and also staying with their with them at their place in new york city sometimes and kind of just like couch surfing or whatever you know and uh 
you know, his sister in England was sending him some money. I think it was like $50 a month, which I don't know what that would equate to now, like $2,000 a month or something for his living expenses, you know. But anyways, uh, he um, met these women, uh, Irene and Alice Lewison, who were art students of Mary. That's how Mary and John were paying the bills. I mean, John was doing these little medallion portraits and stuff, but they both taught art at the school, the Finch School, which was like a high-end, you know, kind of kind of more expensive uh, art school on the um, Upper East Side, Manhattan. And um, Alice and Irene were the daughters of this incredibly wealthy copper and metals um, mogul and, and philanthropist, Leonard Lewison, I believe was the father's name. So they had inherited, you know, some money and stuff. He had died when they were still relatively young. And so uh, they, they uh, would visit the Brocken and, um, you know, spend time there. And Herbert met Alice and... Uh, Herbert Crowley fell in love with Alice they yeah. were married in 1924. Uh-huh. And then what happened? Okay, so yeah, they, they um, I mean, they had spent a lot of time together before that because, you know, Mary says in her diary, like, they really became very close friends as early as, like, 1909. So, yeah, Alice and uh, Herbert were finally married in 1924, and, and uh, Mary Mulberry Clark in her diary, she says, Herbert marries Alice at last, you know. Now, a lot of people that know things about them anecdotally that knew people that knew them and stuff like that said, Oh my gosh, Alice was married. That's a shock because everybody knows that that whole circle of women were all lesbians. You know, I mean, they would have never married. Well, maybe she was the odd one. You know, her sister was never married and a lot of the other women around them, but, and, and there was also a theory that they had made a pact, the two of them not to ever marry for financial reasons, but she did end up marrying Herbert in 1924 this is, of course, after he had served in World War One um, in the camouflage division of the uh, British infantry, which was crazy because Alice Lewison was a very prominent pacifist. She was a real prominent member of this organization that basically became the ACLU. Eventually. So she was an American, but he served in the British military. Yes, because he was still a British citizen. And there's a there's a letter describing this time period. Somebody that knew him, they said, "Oh, the outbreak of the war." Uh, 1914 had him by the throat, but when the United States entered the arena in 1917, he joined the British, you know, camouflage division against the advice of his peers and the officers at the enlistment office. <laughs> so, so they were apart during the war then, right? At least for a while. I think he was in the military for like two years. So I think, I think that you know that was like the end of the war in 1919. I think was the end of his time there. They traveled all over the world because Alice, Alice and her sister too. I mean, they traveled all over the world researching these costumes and dances. And I think that's in some ways, I mean, Alice Lewison was a super intellectual person and she read all the, all the newest stuff. And she had, I mean, she was an expert in this Kabbalah and all this stuff. I mean, really an expert. I mean, she was a serious intellectual force. Did she write anything? She wrote an autobiography, which, funny enough, doesn't mention Herbert Crowley at all, which, you know, there's various reasons that could be. But um, it's called uh, The Neighborhood Playhouse, Leaves from a Theater Scrapbook. And I think during her time with Young, I think he was kind of encouraging her to write it. And like and during their analysis, you know, he would kind of give her pointers on it or she, she would bounce ideas off of him and stuff, you know. So Alice and Herbert eventually moved to Zurich. Yeah. So, yeah, they marry in 1924. 
they spend some time in Paris. They also travel all over the world. They're in Egypt and India and everything else. I wonder what's Herbert doing at this point? Because you had mentioned to me that, I think when we were talking earlier, that he didn't pursue his art after the war. Is that true? Is that what you said? He did pursue it, but he didn't exhibit it. So what was he doing when he and Alice were traveling all over the world? I think there's, see, there's not a lot that can be gleaned about this stuff because there's not a lot of record. I mean, there's some. I, I found, I think, everything that could be found. Right. Um, but there's definitely gaps where you just think, wow, I mean, what was he doing? But as far as I can tell, he traveled with Alice or sometimes probably Alice and Irene. And he mm-hmm. met all of these incredible intellectual people. And, you know, I mean, there's a, in the Metropolitan Museum, they've got some of his works on paper. And there's a, a poem from Rabindranath Tagore, who knew Alice Lewison and was part of the, you know, he had come to their theater and stuff in, in New York. And uh, Herbert Crowley was into this temple symbology. And there's a handwritten poem to Herbert Crowley from Rabindranath Tagore in these papers. And, you know, it's just that type of thing. I mean, I don't know. And I, I sometimes speculate, I'm like, well, I wonder if he was doing little commercial art things and stuff like designing tiles or like, but there's no evidence of it. I mean, nothing's ever been found. And Mary Mowbray Clark's letters, she mentions him sometimes trying all these different avenues of commercial art and they're all universally a failure. You know, everything is like Herbert's designs for, you know, kitchen tiles were rejected. You know, the only one that ever, that ever gets accepted is um, his comic strip in the New York Herald in 1910. But anyway, let's keep moving. Uh, Let's jump forward to this time in Zurich and stuff. So, yeah, what exactly he was doing all that time? I mean, you know, he was traveling with them and meeting all these people. And I mean, maybe he was doing art on commissions for some of these people. I really don't know. I mean, I know he sold some art in New York before the war to a couple of real interesting people and stuff. But I mean you know, a lot of this stuff, if it comes out of the woodwork, then we'll know. But until it does, you can't know exactly. The art that is on your Kickstarter campaign page, um, Nightmare, The Haunt, The Wiggle Much newspaper strip, The Influence of Slander, The Temple Mysteries. Is this all from one specific time period? Or is this throughout the course of his life? That's throughout the course of his life. And a lot of that work, you can't date. I mean, we don't have a date for it, but some of it, he would write the year on it or or for one reason or the other, we know. And um, yeah, it spans his lifetime. I mean, and it's interesting because he did those little wiggle much characters his whole life, both before and after they were in the the comic strip. The Temple of Love and the Temple of Dreams. When did he do those? And they're clearly, to me, influenced by his world travels. Yeah. I mean, I think some of that stuff might have been influenced by Ananda Kumaraswamy, too, because he was actively trying to get American and, and British artists, Western artists, really, to, um, you know, include Indian motifs and, and themes in their artwork in order to draw attention to some of these political causes and stuff in India. I don't know that for sure, but e- either way, he knew him. And so he would have, unlike most people in, in his time and place, I mean, he had a wide ranging um, exposure to different art forms and stuff. Well, and and there's a photograph of you holding the Temple of Dreams, uh, I mean, uh, unfurling it. And where is that now? That's in Zurich. That's in his niece's. uh, So his family in Zurich have, you know, other than the Metropolitan Museum of Art, they have the biggest collection of his stuff. You know, it's probably about 30% the size of the collection the Met has. 
what I want to know and what I, I think people are interested in knowing that listen to this podcast is how and why he and his wife wound up in Zurich and specifically at the psychology club. Right. Well, Alice Lewison, I'm sure had read Jung and might have even met him in 1913 because he almost definitely attended that Armory show. Yeah, you mentioned that. And I, I was looking through a couple of his biographies. I certainly haven't looked through all of them. But where did you get that idea that, that he was probably at the Armory show, which is also known, by the way, as the International Exhibition of Modern Art? Right. That's what the American Association of Sculptors and Painters, that, that was what they called it. But then it just became called the Armory show as kind of a slang or something. Well, I had a couple of sources for that and none of them say he definitively was there because there is no record that he definitively was there, but he was in New York at that time and place. And he had a, he had a friend that lived like a block away from there or something and was involved in the show that had work in the show. But one source for that was from this uh, red book. That's his art, the film's art. And there's a little chapter in here. I'm looking through it now. Or you're looking through the Red Book? We talked a lot about the Red Book on this podcast. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's, it's super fascinating. I think about this a lot because I imagine Herbert Crowley probably knew Jung as an artist. You know, the two of them were artists, and uh, that's, that's pretty neat to think about because um, that aspect of Jung's life I think he kept pretty private. Jung was criticized for writing something about Picasso and about James Joyce, and he said he would never comment again on, on the artwork of someone he had never met. So I think he was burned a little bit by that. Right, right. That makes sense. Tangentially related, by the way, the Sunwise Turn wanted to publish Ulysses. Mm. They, they sold it and stuff for sure, but they wanted to publish it, but they didn't have the money to publish it at the time. Um, so it ended up getting scooped up by somebody else. But there's a rumor from Mary Mulberry Clark's granddaughter, uh, who's, who's not alive anymore, but there's a rumor from her that the Sunwise Turn made bootleg copies of it, like just a few of them that they printed themselves, and none of them have ever surfaced. There is a copy that was sold at the Sunwise Turn on sale on the internet now for like, I think it's like a million dollars or something. But anyway, so yeah, in this little in this little article, and there's other sources too, but I just remembered this one. It says, uh, in 1913, when he was in New York, he like, likely attended the Armory Show. Uh, he referred to Marcel Duchamp's painting New Descending the Stairs in a 1925 seminar, which had caused a furor there. Uh, here, he also referred to having studied the course of Picasso's painting. Given the lack of evidence of extended study, Young's uh, knowledge of modern art probably derived more immediately from direct experience. Uh, during the First World War, there were contacts between the members of the Zurich School and Artists. Uh, and it talks about the Dadaists and all this stuff at Zurich. But um, You're reading from the intro- Sean Dasani's introduction to the Red Book? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just, I, I just. I missed that part about the Armory Show, or I didn't remember. Good catch. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I, I caught it because I, I really thought that was a special um, little bit of research because that that's another way that he kind of intersects with the story um, in, in in the earlier years, you know. And uh, Alice Lewison, by the way, was the first, or maybe the second, but she was one of the very first financial backers of that show, of the Armory Show. I think she donated, you know, $200 or something in like early 1912, December 1912 or something when they first started putting it together. So that's not really widely known. So I, I think it's kind of interesting. And what year did Alice and Herbert move to Zurich? It would have been probably 
later 20s, early 30s. It's kind of just a guess. I don't know exactly. I know Alice was referred to Jung from her theater colleague, Robert Edmund Jones, who had undergone psychoanalysis with Jung. It, it just, he, I just have to say it, it amazes me, and I don't know if anybody listening can relate to this, but could you imagine moving to another country just to re- receive analysis? I mean... Right. And, you know, the other thing was everything that they did was by boat. They traveled by sea. You know, it's like when I find these letters from Herbert and stuff, and he says, you know, I've got some sailing to do. And, you know, it's like, wow. So they would spend a couple of days going across the ocean and then get to Europe and then travel by rail. And like, yeah. Um, I appreciate that because it's giving me perspective on me being upset that I have to wait six minutes for Uber to show up. <laughs> well, well here's, here's another thing, though. Alice was uh, independently wealthy. I mean, she didn't have to worry about money. You know, money was like not a concern. So what's she going to do? I mean, she's a, she's, a re- she's a very intellectual person that's interested in spirituality and philosophy and all this stuff. And she got interested in Jung via the Robert Edmund Jones. And I guess she just was really, you know, moved by it. And she thought, well, you know, I'll go to Zurich. And, you know, so, so she did. And, and uh, so, yeah, they, they ended up there. And, I, you know, like I say, probably the later 1920s, early 1930s. So the accounts here are kind of are kind of funny. There's a there's a book I kind of learned through the course of this research with the with the Jungian stuff what the couple of real primary source books and stuff are that are really good. You know, like there's a lot of stuff. It's kind of like Alistair Crowley. There's mountains of books about him, but there's a couple of facts about him that are interesting that are only mentioned in one or two of the books. You mm-hmm. know? Um, and there's a really good book called uh, Jung, My Mother and I, Mm -hmm. The Analytic Diaries of Catherine Rush Cabot, edited and narrated by Jane Cabot-Reed, her daughter. And uh, that book is amazing because it's it's not not the only, it's definitely one of the few firsthand accounts of somebody that was undergoing psychoanalysis from Jung and writing about it as it was happening. So Mm -hmm. in other words, when she would come away from a session, she would write down what he said and what she thought about it and everything like that. I wish the book was just a verbatim, you know, copy of her diary. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is interesting the way she did it. Her daughter kind of wrote it as like, she tells the emotional story of her connection with her mother. And then she uses these diary entries as like jumping back into the past to show you how their relationship developed the the mother and daughter, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's neat. I think it's, I think that's a cool idea and everything, but, for my purposes, I was like, oh, man, I just want to read the diary. I tried to see if somebody just had the diary still, but I kind of reached a dead end with it. Anyway, so Herbert Crowley and Alice Lewis and Crowley are mentioned in this book a couple of times by uh, Catherine Rush Cabot. But uh, in the in the uh, index in the back, the daughter, she has uh, Mr. Crowley down as Alistair Crowley, because I think she just was at a total loss for who Crowley was, you know. This was the daughter she she didn't know. Yeah, she didn't know because her because her mother had passed away and she okay. was just going through these diaries and she's like, right. "Who's Crowley?" Like, I don't know. She knew who Alice Lewison was, but Mister Crowley, she's like Mister Crowley. I don't know. And you know, Herbert Crowley died in 1937, so it's not like he didn't live to an era where um, a lot of these people then would have have a, had a living memory of him. I mean, a lot of the people that would have known his time in Zurich with Young. I mean you know, 1937 was then there was kind of a whole new group of people by the fifties and stuff. And they had all forgotten about him. 
What, what did he die of, by the way? I don't know exactly, but he died suddenly at home. Uh, he was divorced. Alice Lewison and him were divorced in like 35, and he remarried this woman who was the co-owner of a uh, real high-end perfumery that both of them had frequented uh, called Selah's uh, uh, Perfumery. And so her name was Nina Selah, and uh, he was married to her for like less than a year and a half, I guess, and then he died. You know, it seemed to me like he had a heart attack. I mean, the family story is that he was in the bathtub and she came in and found him. He was also a smoker and he had been in World War One, so it's possible he was exposed to some of these gases and stuff. So that might have, you know, had some, who knows, you know, but right. you, would, you, would, you would presume probably heart attack. So he and Alice were married. They were both receiving analysis from Jung. Is that true? Yeah, it's, I think so. Um, I know... Alice was because there's letters from Jung to her and from her to Jung about it. You know, I mean, they were, they were writing to each other and she would mention, oh, at my last meeting with you and stuff like that. Herbert's relationship with Jung is a little more shadowy because he wasn't, you know, writing letters back and forth with Jung and stuff, at least not that have been preserved. Where did you find Alice's letters? Oh, those were in that um, EPH bibliotheque in Zurich. And they're and not published so, anywhere? No. Not previously. You found them in, how did you have access? So this person, Thomas Fisher in Zurich, who was one of the young descendants, Herbert Crowley's niece in Zurich got very interested in this. And we were, when we were in Zurich, staying with her, me me and my wife, we went to, um, what's the name of the house, Jung's house on the the Gold Coast, they call it, by the river. His family home in Kusnacht? No, no, no. The retreat in Bollingen? No, no, it's a house in Zurich. It's like on the river. Um, it's right yeah, beside so the water. You were there in November of 14. I was there in November of 15. It's now November of 16. So his family home on Lake Zurich in Kusnacht, that's not what you're referring to? Oh, it could be. I don't know the geography at oh, all. Oh, okay. You know? I mean, I'm completely, I couldn't be more ignorant of it. Um, I knew at the time, but I, I went there and I came home and Whoa, whoa, so you went, you, whoa, whoa, stop, stop. You, you were in Jung's house in Zurich, is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And how did you get in? So Herbert Crowley's niece, Susie, this woman in Zurich, she got really interested in this stuff. You know, I was really interested in it, and it, and it kind of rubbed off on her because she's a, she's a descendant. She's a family member of this person, so she got very into it as well. And see, she was great because she speaks German, so mm-hmm. she can speak the language, you know. Um, right. So she was great to have just to explain to people what we were trying to do and stuff. But she explained to them, you know, I have this this relative that, you know, was part of a psychoanalysis club, and I think that he might have art in the uh, art collection, because they have an art collection there that was done by young, uh, what do they call them, analyst fans, you know. Where are you talking about right now? At this house. At the house. So yeah, they have a just, library there. Okay, so let, let me just back up for, for a minute here. The club that's in Zurich is called the Psychology Club. I've also uh-huh. seen it written as the Psychological Club. I right. visited there a year ago and was given a tour by the president, Andreas Schweitzer, who's currently mad at me for talking about our private conversation. So that club... Uh, was formed in 1916, and this year they celebrated their 100th anniversary. So that's the club you're referring to that Alice and Herbert were part of. 
right? Yeah, I believe so. Because as I, as I remember also, there was a part of it that was almost like an auditorium where there's a lot of chairs. There's a lecture hall. Yeah, so a sort of audience could sit there. Um, yeah. And there's like a little stage. Yeah, so yeah, that's the place. Well, I didn't see a stage, but in the psychology club, which is in the original, well, the building that was purchased wasn't the original place where they started meeting, but that's where it currently is now. And that used to be the home of the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich, which eventually moved to Kusnacht. So that's that, the psychology club. The house you're referring to, if if I have this correctly, is the home that Jung and his wife had built right after oh, they yeah. were married. I, I've seen pictures of that, uh, and, and that is not the one. That's not, that is not because, the one. So I'm trying to figure out no. which one you're talking about. It, it would have been the psychology club, you know? The one that's in Zurich, in downtown Zurich. Yeah. I, yeah. The name of the street begins with a G. Yeah, I don't remember that at all, but... Uh, uh, at any rate. And there's a photo of you. I just want to say also on your Kickstarter campaign page, there is a photograph of you. It says in Carl Jung's study. Now that room doesn't look familiar to me. I'm trying to figure out where you were. At that place, at the psychology club. In the psychology somewhere club. Somewhere in that building. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't see that because room. They have these big, um, I don't know what they are. It's some kind of traditional Swiss art form, like a folk art form where they make these like, big um, ovens, like ceramic brick ovens. And I guess one of Young's relatives, you know, his, I don't know what, great-grandfather or something, I have no idea, built these things and was kind of well-known for it. So they had a couple of those in there. I thought that was neat. But they have a library, and then they have this art collection of uh, art by analysts. And, and uh, I, was, I was really hoping that Herbert Crowley's work would be in that collection mm-hmm. of art. Um, but there was nothing in there by him that, that I could identify. And I felt pretty sure about that because I know his style and also his signature and everything else. So, But then uh, after we came home from all of this and some time went by, uh, Susie, the, the niece, she kept on researching it and, and trying to find, you know, so, somebody from Jung's family, some descendant or something that would have some material or know something. Or, and so this person, Thomas Fisher, got on board and he was he became kind of enthusiastic about it. Now, who is this Thomas Fisher that you've mentioned him a few times? Uh, I, I, I guess from Susie's emails, see, I'm not totally like, I'm not totally crystal clear on this because I've never, I've never tried to completely understand all this because it's not mentioned in the in the biography or anything. There is some firsthand research stories, like I mentioned the, the old house crumbling into the woods and stuff, but I don't really get into this in there, so I've never I've never had a reason to really completely understand it all, but um, he would have to be either a descendant of Jung or friends friendly with the family somehow, because what he found for us was some Herbert Crowley sculptures that had belonged to Jung. And he said in an email to either Susie, you know, he said, oh, when I was in art school when I was younger, I remember somebody, what either, either, somebody in Jung's family or somebody else saying they were studying pop art. And they said, oh, the only cartoonist I ever really knew of was Herbert Crowley that was part of the psychoanalysis club and everything. And he said, oh, I'd never heard of him. He said, yeah, the wiggle much. And he says, I never could find anything about this wiggle much or anything. <laughs> yeah, he got interested in it and he found those letters and uh, sent us scans of those letters. And then he found these sculptures and stuff and had the sculptures photographed. Did you meet this Thomas Fisher? 
No, Susie has met him. I think she's met him a, a number of times. And he's writing a book, actually. I think it's only going to be published in German, but it's about artists who knew Jung or like Jung's relationship to artists. And because he got interested in all this stuff, then one of the photographs of one of the Herbert Crowley sculptures that's in his collection is, is included in this book. And it has like a little two paragraph blurb about Herbert Crowley or something. Jung and Freud are two different schools of psychology because they split. And mm -hmm. so psychoanalysis is Freud and okay. analytical psychology is Jung. And I'm still right. trying to get clear with you. I'm sorry to be such a stickler, but this is important of where you were in this photo because you referred to this as the psychoanalytic club and that can't be this. Right. I'm trying to understand well, if that if that's the psychology club in Zurich or not. I guess it would have to be because it's that same building. Oh, right. I have a photo of that building. I can, I took a lot of photos of it that I could show you. When you walked into the building, what did you see? Did you go up a staircase and see a huge portrait of Tony Wolf, an oil painting on the wall, and then to the left of that? No? I, I tell you what, next to it, there's like a boating club that has some really ancient looking uh, mural paintings on it of like Christ. And a the snake? Ache, I can't remember. Uh, I'll tell you another thing I remember. The downspout, the rain runoff downspout is like a dragon's head. In like on the building next door? No, on the, on the main building, not the building next door. The building next door is like this boating club, but it's this really old building and it has this neat little like painting on the Okay, top. so now the building that you were in in this photo where you say you're in Jung's study. That's what we're talking uh -huh. about. You're in the downtown area of Zurich or you're out by the lake? Uh, we're out by the lake. Yeah, it's by the water. So maybe you're talking about the C.G. Jung Institute. Very well could be. That's in Kusnacht. That's right on the lake. And yeah, it's, it I looks that, like an old house. Right. Yeah, that, I think that sounds right. I think, that's, I think we're starting to figure this out. It kind of <laughs> looks like an old farmhouse. It's white. Yeah. Yep. I think we're figuring okay, it out. So that's not the psychology club. That is the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich. Okay. That's why that room didn't look familiar. I was not allowed right. in the library. It was closed the day I visited. And then those ceramic ovens, I've never seen yeah. that before. So that's why I, I didn't think you were in the psychology club. Right, right. I had, I had been curious because um, I'll ask you a question real quick and, and I, I'll, I'll make it short, but in relation to this stuff, there's some Jungian terminology that people were bandying about a lot. Herbert Crowley and Alice Lewis and, and people writing letters in the circle of people at the time, like, and they'll use these terminologies like, you know, Alice Lewis will say something like, oh, I'm sorry you ran out of breath climbing up the mountain, but this often happens to intuitives and I sort of get that, you know, she's saying like, oh, you're an artistic temperament or something, but because she's saying this person didn't think that they were getting older and they wouldn't be able to climb this mountain, you know, but they use this term transference and it always sounds like to me, like they have a crush on somebody. Like, it's like, oh, I think I have a transference on this person, but then they have a transference on me and the transference is becoming, and I'm like, I can't quite understand what it means. But I think it was it was common among that group of people at the time, like a term that was they all they all understood its meaning pretty well. And I wondered if you knew how they would have understood it among among one another. 
you know, because I felt like this term transference was used in that circle of people around Jung and probably Jung himself to mean a certain thing that that's a little bit beyond my understanding, you know, because Herbert Crowley in one of his letters, um, he's talking about the agonized state of his personal affairs. It seems like his marriage is breaking down and stuff. And he says, I think I have a transference on, you know, this person and that person, but it causes a black reaction in me. And then, wow, I'd love to read this stuff. This is going to be in the book, I hope. Yeah, I don't know if that specific letter is, but some of these types of letters will be. And you're in possession of these letters now? I'll answer your question, but this is fascinating. They are in the collection of uh, The Woman in Zurich, of Herbert Crowley's niece. The niece is holding on to this stuff. Yeah, she she had some idea to maybe donate it to the Metropolitan Museum eventually, but right now she has it all. Her family has some of it. It's all scattered around the family a little bit, but she has the bulk of it. And she she just let you see it? Yeah, I went there and scanned everything that she had. I mean, I took a couple hundred photographs, and oh, my wow. wife Mandy sat there with a the scanner for a couple of days, and she scanned 630 pages of notebooks or something. To answer your question about transference, I am not a clinician. All you clinicians listening to this, getting ready to pounce. The word transference, from what I understand, it's a specific kind of projection, and it's usually used to describe what arises between an analysand and the analyst, mm. right? So we, as analysands, project things onto our analysts, and that's called a transference. And they're okay. positive and negative. Right. Okay. And that's how we're able to work through issues is because we're projecting them onto the analyst. And so we work it out with the analyst. And then okay. there's counter-transference, which is that the analyst, also a human being with all kinds of stuff, projects their stuff onto the analysand. That's a counter-transference. Well, since they're trained, they realize it's happening, and they know uh, what to do with it. Right, right, okay. So I wouldn't use the word transference if I'm talking about a male friend of mine that I'm having a reaction to. I wouldn't say I was having a transference. I'd say, well, I'm projecting something onto him. Right, right. But that's not that's not to say that they used it incorrectly. Maybe that's how they uh, used it back then. Yeah, I, I get the feeling there wasn't the, the, the patient confidentiality stuff was, was non-existent. Yeah, there are a lot of loose boundaries from what what I understand and there still are today. I have my hand up. <laughs> yeah, they, they work through a lot of stuff and they're often criticized for it. Uh, going on vacation with their analysands and going out to dinner with them. But, you know, they were working through all this stuff. It was new. Right. Oh, yeah, sure. I get that. I get the sense of that. Okay, so I found one of these letters. Mm -hmm. This person, Chris, is a mystery. I've never figured out who this person, Chris, is. It was, a, it was a female friend of Alice Lewison. And I have some letters mentioning Chris, and then there's letters in Zurich mentioning Chris. I've never figured out who that is exactly. But So this is a letter from Herbert Crowley, I guess probably in the early 30s. I'm not sure. But he says, uh, face the two women to find out what it is in me that creates such an uproar within me. There must be something in me which has been transferred. Describe just what Chris represents to you. Cool. Then, in the same way, describe Miss Wald. He's probably talking about this woman, Lillian Wald, that was a friend of Alice Lewis and big-time, super-important, amazing person. <laughs> so then he says, 
uh, doing jobs for me without being asked and getting a violent recitation because she has done the job. Seemingly, there is no possible way of showing one's thanks for the service which she casts upon you. What effect has this upon me? She talks away my independence and whacks me because of it. This sounds like emotional authority. Have I this tendency toward emotional authority? Mm. Yes, with Bill. And then it says, uh, there's a terrific feud between Chris and Wald caused by jealousy of position. Wald, the lady, Chris, the slave, both joined to Alice Lewisman and Irene Lewisman. Wald, to me, is joined to A.L. I am joined to A.L. So joined to Wald. Wald is full of emotional something. And then the rest of the letter is somewhere else on this page. <laughs> you know, you get a sense of it. Well, how much of this are you putting in the book? Tell us about the book. Yeah, so a lot of these, a lot of these letters, that particular letter, there's excerpts from it in the book when it talks about the marriage, Alice Lewison and Herbert Crowley's marriage sort of coming to an end and stuff, because there's a, uh, there's another really great letter from him or a little, I should call it almost like a chart or something where he describes all the people in the uh, circle of people around Young and sort of like these um, one word terms or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, you sent me that. That's it. fascinating. Uh, Tony Wolf is the keeper of the gate and Young is the eye overall and all this stuff like that. But then there's this, uh, there's a couple of letters from Alice Lewison to Young where she's saying, oh, you know, it's only after leaving you. I, I, I don't want to even quote from because I'll get it wrong, but basically she's just completely swept off her feet by this analysis and everything and completely, you know, her head is in the clouds. And then she says, you know, I'm, I'm at a difficult point with Bertram. Things are at a critical moment with him. And, you know, Young is sort of advising her on that and stuff. But then in this analytic diary of uh, Catherine Rush Cabot, there's a couple of offhand references from Young where he's kind of gossiping about the Crowleys. And he's saying, you know, oh, uh, nobody understands Mr. Crowley. He's just a mess. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, he's saying, oh, I tried to put him in this certain town, you know, because he would uh, kind of arrange little living arrangements for people and stuff, I guess. And he says... I tried to put him in this town, kind of be the the jester of the town, but he wouldn't stay there, you know. And it seemed like it probably caused some tension in in uh, the Crowley marriage, you know. Here's one, uh, June twenty second, nineteen thirty six. When I went in, Mrs. Crowley was leaving. Then halfway up the garden path, she ran back to Doctor Young when she was to ask when she was to see him again. It showed her up as such an egoist. Doctor Young uh, or Uncle then talked to me about Crowley. He said Mrs. Crowley was so harassed by his, Mr. Crowley's letters, as he was writing her, that it was Miss Wolfe who wanted to stop me from writing to him. Crowley apparently has a transference on me. Uncle mm-hmm. asked if I disliked him or what. I said that he bored me with the stuff he wrote, just like Dr. Baines. Uncle then said that Baines comes out with his adolescent psychology stuff, college boy mentality like Crowley. That is their degree of maturity. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Nothing's changed. You know, there's some. It's 2016 it's, and nothing's changed. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but the way that transference is used in that little text, I mean, mm-hmm. I was like, that's not even, that's not, you know, she's just, she's uh, an analyst and of Young, and he's saying, oh, I think Mr. Crowley has a transference on you, or, you know, or, did I remember that right? I don't even remember. Well, I now, think but. that's okay. I think that the, those words were new and. Right. Um, to them and they were still working out what they meant. Right. I just, that was one that I kept coming up against and I, I'm writing the biography and I'm putting this stuff in and I'm like, I want to know exactly what it is that they're trying to say here. I mean, the stuff is just 
endlessly fascinating. And I mean, any, any one aspect of, of Herbert Crowley's life story, it could be a whole library of books right there. I mean, he just crossed paths with so many incredibly interesting people and times and the time with C.G. Young is one of them, but you know, there's all these other things too, that are just all this new stuff at the time and technology was changing so quickly. And you know, all the psychology stuff was changing and changing the world and people's outlooks and the way that they thought about things. And, but uh, anyway, long story short, I think that there was some tension in Herbert Crowley and Alice Lewison's marriage mm-hmm. um, because of their relationship with Jung. I think, you know, Alice Lewison funded some of Jung's books, uh, the Dream Seminar, the publishing of those books and stuff. So she was, she was very dedicated and, you know, completely a fully fledged member that was all a hundred percent into this stuff. And it seemed to me like, it's hard to say, but I think Herbert Crowley might've been more interested in it in the beginning and then became a little more disillusioned with it. Right. Um, there is actually, I should say a piece of artwork of his where it's like a little temple and some footsteps going into it. And underneath it says last interview with Dr. Young. Um, and then it has a date on the page that has this podcast. I'll include that. And I'm looking at it right now. Last interview with Dr. Young. It just says Tuesday, November 4th. And then underneath that is written November 10th, 10 a.m. And it's like a map. Yeah, I don't know exactly what that's about, but he had some internal symbolism to it that he understood, you know, the key to it, I guess, is lost. But uh, there might be a year on that piece of artwork that's not in that photo. I might have cropped it so that you could see that text a little more. I'll look for it later. At any rate, his family Mm -hmm. recollection is an interesting thing because this is all stuff that comes down word of mouth through through uh, Herbert Crowley's family, his family from his brief marriage to Mina Salas uh, in, in 1935 to his death in 1937. Um, and so their, their sort of anecdotal family memory, memory is that um, after the divorce, he put a put distance between him and they, they call it the Jungian stuff. You know, they're like, oh, after the divorce, it was like, he didn't want to have anything to do with this stuff. Mm-hmm. And even, even um, you know, the occult and the mystical stuff and sort of stuff like that, that he had always been, he was always really fixated on this idea of uh, the problem of evil. But unlike and probably opposite of somebody like Aleister Crowley, he wasn't interested in trying to explore evil, like trying to look it in its face and say, well, I'm going to, you know, really try to tackle it. Or like Jung would say, like, I don't know how he words it or whatever, but he says, you know, you acknowledge the shadow. Whereas I think uh, Herbert Crowley was, you know, he was like, well, I'm going to block out the shadow by, by the symbology and the artwork and stuff. You know, it's like, like I said earlier, it's like a talisman. That's kind of the way he thought of it. You know, there's a couple of references to him in his younger days where they say, oh, his wiggle mutches were like talismans to ward off evil forces. And they reflected his mood at the moment and stuff like that. But so his family memory basically is that after the divorce, his new wife, Mina, he said, oh, you know, it's like you're pulling me out of a swamp with all this, all this negativity, you know, and all these bad emotions and complications and stuff. And he had this one drawing of a woman pulling a man up from like a crumpled heap sort of, you know, and mm-hmm. he dedicated that drawing to her. And then for the rest of his life, now granted, the rest of his life was a very brief time. <laughs> he 
He's right. reported by his family to have ceased making artwork and tried to destroy the work that, that he had. And if somebody else had some work of his, he'd say, oh, you shouldn't destroy that. You know, he's burning his um, drawings in this big mm. cauldron that was used to do laundry at the time in the attic. And so that had certainly had to do with uh, his erasure from the art world as well. Now, had he continued to live, if he had lived another couple of years, I would speculate he would have probably started to make new work, maybe in a different direction. But, you know, it wasn't the first time in his life he did that sort of thing, his work in the Armory show. There's a later Armory catalog that says underneath of it, it says destroyed. You know, <laughs> So he destroyed the pieces that were in there. Yeah, but either way, still a lot remains. Um, and his niece actually has some interesting memories. She said she had a memory of uh, when she was a little kid, I guess it was her and her sister. They found some of Herbert Crowley's, uh, those temple kind of drawings, you mm -hmm. know? And she said, I remember my mother saying, oh, you have to destroy those. You know, you have to get rid of those. And she said, I don't, didn't know if that was because she still remembered him saying, you know, I don't want this stuff to right. be in the world anymore. Or if she just didn't want any more clutter around because she had right. kids. You know? <laughs> uh, I do have to say, though, that Alice Lewison and Herbert Crowley never had a complete toxic falling out or anything like that. I mean, the letter that I found in the Brocken from 1937, yeah. Alice Lewis says, we never ceased to have a profound relationship with all the changes life brought. So it isn't like he put so much distance between her and this whole, because she remained a, a member of, of that, what is it, the, the psycho, not the psychoanalytic club. The psychology club. The psychology club. She remained a member of the psychology club up until her death in the 70s. Mm. Um, I have an obituary from of, of hers in German that's like a psychology club obituary. You know? Did she remarry? Um, no. And so, she remained in Zurich? Yes, she did. And like I say, I have a copy of her obituary from the psychology club. I had a friend translate it for me one time, but 72, she died. Yeah, you know, the individuation process is not always, um, in fact, it's never easy. And a lot of relationships break up as a result because it's about becoming your own person. You know, I'm glad you said that because there was a thing in that analytic diary that I always thought was really fascinating. And in fact, it's in the biography. I included it in the biography because I thought it was so fascinating, but I never completely understood it. But now that you say that, I think I get the context of it a little bit more because Jung says this thing. I mean, this is uh, this woman, Catherine Rush Cabot, this is her memory of what he said, like after she went home and wrote it down. So mm -hmm. it's a little bit grain of salt, but I'm sure it's roughly the gist of what he said. You know, he said something along the lines of when they came to me, Herbert and Alice, they were the something like, what did he say? Like the best couple I had ever encountered. And mm -hmm. so I knew they would have to split. I knew yeah. they had to break apart. <laughs> and, I, and I remember at the time scratching my head, I was like, why would he think that they had to part ways oh, because yeah. they were like the best couple he had ever encountered, you know, but it sort of makes sense because I mean, they really were both such incredible people and in pretty different ways. And I think they complemented each other well, but I also don't know much about their interpersonal relationship because they were both super private people and really introverted. Well, you can't really be an individual when you're kind of joined at the hip with another person. Right. And I also think maybe the stuff with Herbert Crowley, I mean, this is a little speculation on my part, but Alice was incredibly wealthy, not like a billionaire or anything like that. But, you know, she she had enough money that money was not a concern in her life. Like, what am I going to do to pay the bills? Herbert Crowley came from sort of a, you know, in England, they, they're really class conscious. They, they're really into He came from a family that was sort of um, 
upwardly mobile middle class. So they were like a middle class family, but their name was very important to them. And they'd say, you know, we, we actually have, you know, relatives in the peerage, you know, it's true, you know, like, it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I think that he had some tension with the family, not only because of his failure as an opera singer and stuff, but also because he was always flat broke, unable to make a dime as an artist and then was kind of living off of them, but they didn't have a lot of money. And I sort of think that, and this is not known factually. I mean, there's no like objective evidence for this or anything, but mm-hmm. just, just reading between the lines and seeing what is there and then trying to see the outline of what's missing. It seems to me like Alice Lewison sort of took him under her wing. And there is a, there is a, a thing either she said or somebody else said, Oh, maybe Mary Mulberry Clark said about her. I can't remember that. Um, she had to take Herbert along with her because she saw that there was something so special in him and it was being squashed by the world or something like that. Yeah. And I'm sure that was probably true, but you can also imagine all the interpersonal difficulties, you know, if he was, he was basically, you know, traveling with her and doing his art. I mean, he was actually pretty prolific. The the stuff that she donated to the Met, there's like pounds of his artwork. It's like, and, and thank God she didn't destroy it. Right. But anyways, uh, he made a lot of artwork and stuff, but it's like, I almost feel like another thing that contributes to him being so forgotten is that he never really needed to um, be a commercial mm. artist. I mean, he did his comic strip in 1910, but then I yeah. think for a big chunk of his life, he was just kind of living with her and being taken care of and not having to right. put himself out there to, for support. Yeah. He didn't have to go out in the world and say, Oh, I, I have to publish another comic strip or, exhibit some work or something <laughs> it's like after world war one he just was sort of like i think the war freaked a lot of people out i mean that's another thing i mean after that world war one uh the avant-garde scene in new york really broke up i i was thinking about that a lot today actually i was writing a little thing on uh, social media stuff about it because uh the election stuff and i was like oh it, i hope it doesn't go this way but it sort of it sort of puts me in mm-hmm. mind of that Mm. It breaks up the avant-garde, the flourishing avant-garde stuff that really is like buoyed along on this wave of like things are relatively stable and stuff. And then when the world at large becomes less stable and there's more fear and the economy is getting crazy, it's like it hurts all that stuff. And that avant-garde in New York, a lot of people said, oh, after, after, you know, 1917, it was like the avant-garde in New York died, you know, it was just like, you know, and, and, and he left but I mean, when he came back from the war, you know, I kind of speculate maybe then that was the twenties and they were doing a little better. And I feel like, you know, maybe Alice was like, all right, you know, we're just going to get married and we're going to travel the world. And of course here comes world war two looming, but <laughs> right, he, he died right on the cusp of that really getting going crazy. So. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's that real famous letter from, from young Dallas Lewis and about the Holocaust. The, the long and short of it is right after Pearl Harbor, young, writes a letter to Alice basically telling her to leave Europe, you know, because he doesn't know if the Nazis are going to invade um, Switzerland or what's going to happen. And, and, you know, he says, if you stay here, you're better off if you kill yourself than if you get caught by them. It's like a haunting and intense letter because it really brings home the reality of the situation. You know, he's basically like, <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to be morbid, but you'd probably be better off taking your own life and getting caught by them and put in a concentration camp or something. And, you know, and then I think she did come to New York for a little while and then she went back to Switzerland. But at any rate, 
unfortunately, we've run out of time and are going to have to wrap up. So I'd like you to tell everybody how to find your project, which is Mm -hmm. the Temple of Silence, Forgotten Works and Worlds of Herbert Crowley. And the projected publication date is November of 2017? Yes. And about how many pages is the book? Uh, A hundred, give or take, but it's very large. I mean, that's the reason it's kind of an expensive book because yeah. it's a big book because the publisher really wanted to uh, publish these comic strips, particularly in the in the size that they were originally printed in the oh, newspaper. Nice. So it's almost like a newspaper, Sunday newspaper size, like yeah. half the size of that, you know? Well, thank you so much for your time, Justin, and for indulging me in my intense questions and grilling. And I feel like we just barely scratched the surface, actually, on who this man was, yeah, and the work that he did, and and that we barely scratched the surface on what you uncovered personally over the past six years. And this must have taken you through a very interesting maze. Yes. Connecting things and one thing leading to another, and I'm sure a lot of it was unexpected. Would you say Oh, that? yeah. Absolutely. A lot of it was unexpected. I've had a lot of that synchronicity, you know, like... With yeah, this, I'm with sure you have. I mean, and it's funny, too, because I always think it's so fitting that, this, you know, the stuff that dovetails with the Jungian stuff has all these moments of, like, intense, almost, like, unbelievable synchronicity where I'm like, that. oh, before we go, I have to tell you this. Yes. It won't take but 40 seconds. No, please. And this is the biggest synchronicity moment in the whole thing. It's honestly uncanny. The hair on my neck stood up with this. I mean, this is just one of those moments that's like, I can't even believe, like, I don't know what it means or anything like that. But so when me and my wife were in Zurich and we were at this woman's house, uh, Herbert Crowley's niece, and we're scanning all of Crowley's uh, notebooks and artwork that's in the possession of the family and stuff. In my artwork, I have the, a lot of characters that I make. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're kind of like, uh, they're not exactly like comic book characters, but they're they're somewhere between that and like they're sort of different like deities. They have different qualities, but then the qualities all, you know, some of them have like an opening in them and through that leads into one of the other characters. And But they all have names. Like I like coming up with little inventive names for them and stuff. So they'll have these names like Elusiania, um, Oriania, uh, Marianne Pearlbright, um, uh, let's see, Emile de Gru is one. Uh, Countess Clarion Celeste, um, you know, that's like some of the characters. So I had this one character, Esmeralda de Gabrielle. And Esmeralda de Gabrielle, I was doing a little notebook of just these characters, like, and then it explains all the properties of them. So mm-hmm. Esmeralda de Gabrielle is like a supernatural archivist. So she's recording all the stuff that happens and writing it all down for future reference. Nobody knows of it, but, but it's, it's all there, you know, whatever. So that's kind of her qualities and her name. And so Mandy's scanning one of these pages. She says, you're not going to believe this. You've got to see this. And it was a one-act play by Herbert Crowley. It was like just sketched in a sketchbook. It's like he didn't even finish it, I don't think. He just kind of ran out of ideas, and there it was. But it's a one-act play. And the first character in the play, it says, Esmeralda de Gabrielle composed over 30,000 sonnets, of which this is one. And, you know, it gets into all this stuff about her. And I was like, how can this be the same not only the same name, but it's like the same attributes, yeah. you know, like I, I it was seriously one of those moments where like the hair on my neck stood up and I was like, I'm not even going to 
I'm not even going to try to speculate about what this means. Like, I don't know what it means, but it's like, (laughs) I think that's our real, that's the synchronicity. That's what started this podcast in, in the first place is me wanting to get to the bottom of what synchronicity means. And I don't think anybody is ever going to get to the bottom of it. Right, right. Because there's so much that we don't know, that's what makes it all the more intriguing. And thank you for all the research that you did. And I'm really looking forward to reading more about it. Well, it's been uh, fantastic talking to you. Take my mind off of a uh, world events. You know? I'd like to thank my guest, Justin Durer, for his time today, as well as Josh O'Neill for his work on bringing Herbert Crowley back to life. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com for more information about everything that was mentioned here today. On the website, you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. With special thanks to Talia Eidelman, Christina Becker, and Bob and Debbie Hickey, This is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.